Evans, and last week, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, better known as AOC to many of her beloved fans, attended the Met Gala while wearing a gown with Tax the Rich on the back, and this gained the attention of every single media agency in the country. So today, we will be discussing her appearance there, as well as descriptive representation, and whether her appearance there will move the political needle towards more progressive economic policies. I'm joined today by four guests. First, Brandon Moore is a welder and photographer from Russell County in southwestern Virginia. He's also very involved in local and state politics here. Danielle Lemmy is Tower Center Fellow at the John G. Tower Center for Political Studies at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. She is a scholar of representation in American politics with a focus on identity, race, and gender. She uses experimental and elite interview methods to apply theoretical frameworks of identity and group behavior to questions of voter behavior and legislative politics. With Dr. Nadia Brown, she is the co-author of Sister Style, The Politics of Appearance for Black Women Political Elites by Oxford University Press. Michael McNulty has worked in a wide variety of creative pursuits for more than 20 years and generally enjoys wrestling with questions about life and art while attempting to render some difference in both. With more than 100 theatrical productions to his credit, Michael has worked professionally as a theatrical director, designer, and performer with a wide cross-section of performers, from Broadway actors to circus acts, amateurs to children. Currently, Michael serves as executive director for the Pro Art Association, an arts-presenting nonprofit organization in southwestern Virginia. Prior to that, Michael served as chair of the Department of Visual and Performing Arts at the University of Virginia's College at Wise, a department that he continues to serve as professor of theater arts. Ivy Cargyle is an associate professor of political science at California State University, Bakersfield. Her research focuses on the politics of race and ethnicity in the U.S. context. Specifically, she does research on the intersection of gender and race and ethnicity and its effects on the behavior of political elites and of voters. She analyzes how Latina political actors and other women politicians of color influence policy outcomes and represent their constituents. So let me begin by thanking all of the guests for being on our program today. So Brandon, my first question is for you. On September 14th, we all turned on the TV or we logged into social media and we saw AOC in this dress at the Met Gala. So what was your initial impression of this media story? Well, Heather, I didn't really have an impression. It's, it's AOC. It's what she does. She's a troll. Um, she uses social media to her advantage. She always has since she became part of the scene. Um, so when she's on there with a dress on with all these rich people, I mean, she's, she's trying her best to garner attention, but is she getting the right attention? Is she getting the wrong attention? Are people looking at it as this is AOC or are people looking at it as she's hanging out with rich people? Does this align with her campaigns and even her website up until this point? I mean, what is this a slogan that she's kind of known for? It's, it's her slogan. We're talking about the woman who sells a $58 sweatshirt hoodie uh, saying tax the rich while most of your poor people 
your people making under sixty thousand to forty thousand dollars a year, which is most of the population, they can't afford a fifty eight dollars sweatshirt. And I think that's a great point, um, especially when we look at who it is that she's trying to get attention for. So, do you think? I mean, what what was she trying to gain by wearing this dress to this event? And were there things that you think that she was definitely, this was her purpose for wearing this to this event? She must not have been getting enough attention on Twitter lately because, you know, she, she wanted her five seconds of fame and she got it. Unfortunately, she also overshadowed other people there. Um, she, she got her five seconds of fame. She knew that the conservative talk show host would be throwing a fit over, which they did. So she got what she wanted. Unfortunately, also what I think she got was she got your moderates to, you know, slightly Democrats to even your progressives thinking, okay, here we have the champion of tax the rich of the poor people who is now rubbing shoulders with the rich, eating their caviar, drinking their champagne, showing off in their dress. Whether she got that ticket free or not, she's one of them now. And she already is in the top 10% of earners in this country with 174000 a year salary. So. so that's a really good segue into representation and whether people feel represented uh, by her or not, especially when it comes to descriptive representation. And Danielle, your work revolves around descriptive representation. So I thought at first, perhaps uh, it would be good to kind of step take a step back. How has descriptive representation been traditionally defined in the political science literature? Sure, thanks so much. So traditional descriptive representation, it's defined as shared visible characteristics that indicate shared experiences. That's the definition that Jane, uh, Jane Manbridge put out when she initially theorized the benefits of descriptive representation. Do you think that we need to make some changes to that? I know that some of your research suggests this, correct? I, I do think we need to make some changes to that. A lot of my research integrates multiracial representatives or representatives who could identify with multiple racial categories based on their heritage, based on their ancestry. And one of the things that comes out in my conversations with multiracial legislators are questions about appearance. Sometimes people don't necessarily know that they're a member of their racial group based on how they look. Or people might ask representatives, multiracial representatives, questions about their identities. If their identities don't necessarily line up, with how we think a person from any particular racial group should look. And so one of the things I try to do in my research is separate the choice of identity or how like, you actually think about yourself from your physical appearance, right? And this is kind of the problem with how we think about descriptive representation. When we're thinking about race, ultimately what we're doing if we're looking for visible characteristics that indicate like shared experience is one, we're treating a whole group as a monolith we're saying that there are these characteristics that you should look for that define this group. There are these experiences that define this group. Everybody looks the same, everybody has the same experience. And what we're doing is we're defining race as a biological characteristic. Race doesn't exist, right? And it certainly isn't biologically inherited. And so if you're looking for these visible characteristics, you know, like skin tone or like, you know, features on your face, what you're doing is actually racist. That's a great point. Now, taking kind of your research on politicians, representatives, people who are thinking about getting into politics, and the way that they kind of think of themselves as representatives, how can we merge that with what we saw last week 
with AOC at the at the Met. Do you see parallels there? How can we kind of apply your research to either what happened at the Met or kind of like the discussion that happened after? Yeah. So I think for me, I think what AOC did for me didn't really resonate, right? Because I don't really follow the Met Gala. Gala. I'm not quite sure how to. Uh, I always call it gala too. And like, gala, like I don't it, know. I, yeah, but we'll just call it the man, right? Okay, okay. <laughs> I, you know, I don't really follow that stuff, but I saw yeah. this really great uh, Twitter exchange between two academics saying, you know, academics, you're not the audience. And, you know, and, and one person was like, you know, this might be good for people who follow celebrity culture. And, and I feel similarly. I mean, I think that what AOC did, you know, got people, perhaps got people who would otherwise be paying more attention to their daily grind. Um, than what's going on in the policy world. I mean, I think for me, it didn't really mean much because when I see descriptive representatives, even if I see a representative from my own communities, I don't necessarily think that they're going to change the whole system. Um, And I don't think that they have the power to do that as individuals. Either way, they can be the best communicators, they can be the best strategizers, they can come up with the best, you know, legislation ever. But if it's not going to pass, it's not going to pass. Right. And so For me, I think what would have been more powerful for me is for people to think about, like, even if we pass legislation that taxes the rich or like, you know, whatever, how does that change people's everyday lives? And I think for me, I'm more focused on people organizing their workplaces, talking about unionizing and like thinking about how we can build um, like worker solidarity and worker consciousness between different income levels. And you're absolutely right. The Met uh, Gala, Gala, however we want to pronounce <laughs> that, uh, it, it is one of those events that is not, people do go there and dress a certain way to um, kind of garner attention. And it, it's, it's not necessarily attention from academics. Um, although we are all, I mean, last week we were all sitting around thinking about this dress and whether it was going to have any effect on policy. Mm-hmm. She, she definitely did get attention. Um, she got attention from conservative talk show hosts, um, kind of made their heads explode a little bit, right. About, about her being there in this outfit and, and the tickets cost so much, even though perhaps they were gifted to her. Um, I wonder if, if she did, I mean, her goal, I think, I think her goal was simply to get people to talk mm-hmm. about this idea, right? And this idea isn't new. Um, she's actually had tax the rich on her website on a sweatshirt for quite some time, but the, the idea and maybe bringing other people into this conversation or inspiring people there to talk about it. She wasn't the only person last week that was wearing something fairly political at the Met. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's not something completely you know, new that people are doing this new, but it's, it's AOC. And I think people just immediately are reactionary to what it is that she's doing. So along with this, I know that you do some work on what can we consider descriptive representation, Mm -hmm. right? What are the things that people are doing to be descriptively representative of their group, um, their constituents? I do a little work on this too, involving tweets. Do you think that we should start talking or discussing as academics, the way people present themselves through their dress, their clothing, things like that as a representative? Because I kind of feel like that's been missing from Mm -hmm. the literature. I think that's a really great avenue for for more research. And I'm thinking of, you know, my work with Nadia Brown, the politics of appearance for Black women elites. Um, I know that there are, there's some scholars in sociology, I'm thinking of uh, uh, Jen Sims's work on um, perceptions and hairstyles. And um, I think 
I might have to walk back my comments just a few moments ago, but <laughs> like, right, because I'm, I'm, I'm up to minds here, right? Because I understand, and I do believe that representation matters. So to, to give you an, an anecdote, when I interviewed at an institution, there was um, a junior scholar um, who, you know, I, a, a junior, oh gosh, it's the internet. I, I gotta be careful with the identifiers, but I'll just say that there was, you know, a junior scholar there who, when I saw them, when I, I got to campus, was getting ready to like do the whole, you know, thing with the interviews. And I think they opened their office door and I saw what they were wearing, right? And I, I hope they listen to this because they're gonna know it's them, but I saw what they were wearing, right? They had big earrings, um, you know, bold, colorful clothing. And I was on my way out of grad school and I had gone through a period where I was like, I just feel like I have to mute so much of myself to be in academia. And it was actually not until I saw that person where I felt like, oh, wow, like they did this at an academic institution. I can do this now too. And it was after, you know, seeing them and then like leaving grad school and like whatever, that I actually began to like dress more of how I, I would have dressed if I were still at home, had not gone to grad school. Um, and so I, I do think that um, representation of certain appearances when it comes to makeup, when it comes to fashion, because it communicates culture, it communicates values, it communicates, you know, are you willing to assimilate or not into sort of like a Eurocentric aesthetic or into a conservative, conservative aesthetic? And it can be very um, inspiring for people who are kind of struggling with that. I love that. Um, it actually reminds me of back at the beginning of Obama's administration, where the one young boy came to the White House and he asked him to bend down so he could feel his hair, because not until then had he seen a representation of himself as president. And so thinking about the way we dress, our hairstyles, our makeup, all of that can, can have an impact on how people feel connected to politics. Let me pause for just a moment. For those of you who, are, who perhaps just tuned in to our radio program this afternoon, um, my name is Heather Evans, and this is Red, White, and Confused, and you've been listening in uh, to a panel of four guests today who are all talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's dress that she wore to the Met Gala and the effects that um, of what she wore on the audience. The four individuals that are on the program today are Brandon Moore, who is a welder and photographer from Russell County here in southwestern Virginia, who's very involved in local and state politics. Danielle Lemmy, who is a Tower Center Fellow at the John G. Tower Center for Political Studies at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Michael McNulty, who is the Executive Director of the Pro Art Association, an arts-presenting nonprofit organization here in southwestern Virginia, who also serves as a professor of theater arts at UVA Wise. And Ivy Cargyle, who is an Associate Professor of Political Science at California State University Bakersfield. Okay, so Michael, now that we've been talking a little bit about AOC and the Met and what she was wearing, I think we need to open up this conversation a little broader than just kind of seeing her there dressed in this way. I, I, I see this whole conversation as revolving around what I like to call performative politics or even performative activism and, and art and theater. And so I want to talk with you a little bit about that. So first, in terms of societal values, does art really inform our society's values? Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I think it informs and reflects all the time. And it's doing both of those things at the same time concurrently. 
um, in, in every space we're in, we're always performing and we are always performing in the context of cultural conceptions and understandings that are expected of us. And those performances that we offer are interpreted through those contexts. Yeah, so I know that you've seen this story and, and you also teach a class similar to this topic at the, the college, correct, at UVA Wise? Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you view politics as performance or perhaps what it is that you discuss in your class when it comes to politics and art. Well, there's a, a, a field called performance studies, which like any academic field uses a certain um, context, a certain framework to understand and interpret events and, and actions that human beings undertake. So in, in performance studies, we evaluate things that people do based on theater and performance. And so um, where you might look at something like an inauguration or the State of the Union and think of that as an important, important political event that has um, certain meanings attached to it, you can also look at that as theater and understand all of the actions that are performed and all of the meanings that are attached to it in an artistic way that the people who are engaging those activities have an understanding of how they will be received and the kinds of meanings that will be made out of them by commentators, by other politicians, by people in the media. And so it's a way of sort of framing and, and, and understanding of political activity as a means of analyzing and understanding it from a certain perspective. Yeah, because I'm thinking back to many inaugurations, everyone discusses what people are wearing at those as well, right? The women coming in all in white, that that sends a signal that they are there at, to kind of the, the women's suffrage movement, right? They're playing paying some respect to the women who've come before. And even a few nights ago at the Met, we had a representative also dressed to pay respect to women's equal rights. Um, so in terms of, I guess, the audience for an inauguration, would you say the audience is all of us versus maybe like, who would be the audience for this Met gala dress? Is that, is it, is it everyone? Is, is she speaking to just a few people? What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think you can break down audiences in, in many different ways, but certainly an event as large and encompassing as the Met Gala does on some level have an audience of everyone. Um, if you think about if something were to go terribly wrong at that event, right, we would all hear about it. Uh, if it's just commentary on the fashion or the the society the societal and kind of the the the, the interactions of the famous then you know that's going to be a narrower audience based on people's interests but certainly you know the scale of the event and the people who are invited to it mean that it certainly has the potential to be an audience of everybody and when someone makes a political statement or a performative statement in the way that some of the individuals who participate in that event did um, they are certainly, I think, trying to speak to a much larger audience than just the people who are in attendance with them at the event. Arguably, in AOC's case, uh, the statement is certainly intended for people not at the event, since she's arguing in some ways against the people at the event. 
<laughs> That's very true. Yes. And I, I think about how, when she made this statement, this performative statement, um, that heads, ex- heads exploded. If you were watching TV the day after the Met, everyone was talking about this, right? Every program, Fox News, MSNBC, everywhere. So if the goal was simply to get people to talk about either, number one, talk about her or to talk about the message that her dress was sending, which is tax the rich, for a moment there, I mean, she succeeded, right? Like she, it seemed to be working for her. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, the article that you and I uh, talked about briefly, you know, the first sentence in that article says that the Met Gala has never really been a space for overt political statements. That just seems to me on its face to be just blindly false. Yes. The, The problem is the context from which that understanding is being interpreted is one that ignores the status quo as a political statement, right? So we understand AOC's actions as being radical only because there is a conventional behavior and a conventional dress that we all associate with something like a Met Gala. And so there's all kinds of political statements being made all the time at the Met Gala. It's just they're the statements that we're really used to and that we probably are sort of blinded to because they're a part of the regular stream of conscious experience of our media interactions on a daily basis. So we become kind of you know hypnotized and blinded to those. Um, so if you think of it that way, um, the reason the statement was effective was because it contradicts the conventional attire and behavior associated with the gala. And in that sense, it's highly functional, right? It raised awareness about an issue that clearly AOC is someone who not only wears a t-shirt about that, but speaks about it in public, speaks about it in Congress, um, works with other politicians in Congress to pass laws and advocate for those um, policies that she's committed to. So um, it, it makes total sense, even though it is certainly still not the same as going out and feeding the hungry, or, you know, you can take actions that obviously have a more impactful meaning, but it's certainly not void of meaning. Um, If she were to simply stay home and not participate in the gala because she's, you know, perhaps offended by the wealth uh, gap uh, uh, that it represents, um, that would do nothing, right? No one would have paid attention to that. No one probably would have even questioned why she wasn't there as long as there were plenty other people to stare at and talk about. But because she chose to show up and make such a contradictory statement with her attire, um, it makes news and we all talk about it. Yeah. Even if, even if it's a little short-lived because this week, no one's really talking. I mean, there are some conservative outlets that are still talking about her, but most people have moved on. We're talking about other things that are happening given the 24 hour news cycle, but for For a period of time last week, this was what everyone was talking about. Every single student in all of my classes were talking about this and whether they thought, well, maybe they should dress like this. Um, They perhaps they should buy T-shirts. Perhaps they, you know, we always talk about Halloween costumes. Maybe this could also be a new Halloween costume. Everybody goes out and buys a white dress and writes tax rich on the back of it. Right. And so she she had that moment. Right. And that's the point. Right. It's the repetition of the message that is critical. Uh, We all know that a single moment is not going to change minds, but um, politicians pay lots and lots of money to people who spend lots and lots of time 
curating messages that repetitively attempt to have an impact on people. And there's there's plenty of research that shows that that works, right? That, that the repetition of a message does get through. So it's not so much that AOC did this once, but that this is part of a repetition of a message that AOC is trying to send about the income gap in our country. That is a real verifiable uh, thing based on data. Okay, Ivy, I'd like to shift back into the representation literature a little bit and think about a couple things like how AOC is perceived in general, mm-hmm. and then and then whether instances of performative politics or activity like her outfit choice at the Met will perhaps move the needle towards more progressive economic policy. So first, Ivy, could you tell us a little bit about your research on the stereotyping of Latina candidates and how we might apply that to the way that citizens view someone like AOC? So I think that, um, so in terms of my research, right, I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to actually understand how it is that Latinas are perceived when it comes to American politics, because I constantly think about the fact that when we're thinking about women in politics in general, Latinas are a subgroup it, are, are one of the are one of the, the newest subgroups to come onto the political stage. Um, and so when I think about um, places in the country, states in the country that really don't have a lot of exposure to Latinas, um, I often wonder how they do perceive someone like a, a, a Representative Alexandria Ocasio, Ocasio-Cortez, because she's not, you know, she's 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 not something, she's not someone that they're accustomed to seeing, right? And uh, also too, she's also, I think, very public, right? She's, she doesn't shy away from the camera. She doesn't shy away. Um, she doesn't shy away from anything, which I think is actually really great. She's, she's pretty accessible on social media, at least from what I can see. Um, and she does things like what she did at the, at the gala, right? Where she's going to, um, she's going to put it all out there. Um, so I, you know, in, in, in terms of my research, um, I am trying to figure out uh, what it is that people, how, how people are perceiving all of this and how they equate it to leadership. So I think that in terms of, in terms of policy and if she's able to move the needle a bit, I think that she can be a really great example for people um, in terms of, or for voters, I should say, uh, in terms of if she is able to get any concessions uh, from, in terms of any policy, then I think that, you know, she can be a perfect example of why we do need to have more Latinas in government at, at the local, state, and national level. Um, but I think, I, I think we're, we're still waiting to see if that's actually going to happen. Um, I think her intention, intention was to shine a light on the, on the, the issue of, of income inequality and other inequities in, in, in American society. Um, and I think she did, right? Whether, whether you agree or you disagree with what she did, the reality is that it's, we're still, people are still talking about it. With uh, the other guests, as, as you've heard, that we were thinking about like, it, what was her purpose, right? What was her purpose in, in wearing that there? And did she achieve it? And so you would say, well, yeah, she, she kind of did, right? <laughs> yeah, I think she did. I mean, like, you know, they, I saw some weird no, actually, I think I heard her say on Instagram um, earlier this week that, you know, in terms of how many times Fox News has discussed her um, over the past couple of days, it's been something like 
it, it averages about 760 times a day, right? So yeah, I mean, whether you're completely annoyed or you're in awe of her, uh, the reality is that she got the message across. And I think that was the point, right? She she's not a she's not a dumb individual. She did this on purpose to shed a light. Uh, on 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 the issue, and this is this is one of those things where I think you know, performative or not, um, she kind of she does put her money where her mouth is, right? Unlike other people who were at the gala um, that day, uh, who you know had other messages on their you know with with the attire that they were wearing, she's a congressperson, and we know we've known her agenda from day one, from the day from the moment she started running for office. So it's not like this is an issue that isn't that is new to her. She's one of those few people who. Um, is actually trying to get something done about it. She's trying, you know, when she's saying tax the rich, she's not, she's not just saying it for fun. She's actually trying to figure out how to get legislation passed on this to where, you know, uh, people of certain incomes are taxed a, a bit higher. So, you know, she, she is a bit different in that respect. So in the end, love the dress, hate the dress, love what she did, hate what she did, criticize her for what she did. Either way, um, it got us talking about, um, well, taxing the rich, which tends to be one of her campaign slogans um, just in general. So thanks to all of you for being guests on the program today, and thank you all for listening. If you missed any piece of the broadcast today, you can listen to this program wherever you listen to podcasts, like Spotify and Amazon. See you next time.